Blog Talk Radio. You are listening live to the Alex Cardinal Show, your one stop for news, sports, current events, current news, politics, and fun. With plenty of action packed into this show, there is something for everyone. What will Alex be talking about today? Want to call in and interact with Alex? Call in live at 1 323 642 1605. Now, coming to you live from Springfield, Massachusetts, is the crazy Alex Cardinal. Take it away, Alex. Tonight, live on the Alex Cardinelli Show, Alex Cardinelli will be doing the third part of the history of the United States. Over the past two weeks, we've been discussing the American Revolution, the American Revolutionary War, the presidency of George Washington, the presidency of Andrew Jackson, the Civil War, all the way through the Great Depression. Tonight, we will discuss World War II, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, the Civil Rights Movement, 9-11, and much more. Some of the recent events we will discuss include 9-11 and the presidency of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. We're going to be discussing the 20th and 21st century as well as recent events in tonight's third and final history of the United States of America. So, let's finish this great series off strong by learning about some of the major key United States historical events that took place in just a couple of decades ago or recently. So, Alex Cardinelli, let's get this history show started right now. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Alex Cardinelli Show on this fine Wednesday afternoon. Thank you for listening live, and thank you for listening archive. I hope you guys are having a fantastic day today. I'm your host, Alex Cardinelli, and today on the Alex Cardinelli Show, we are going to be doing Part 3 on the History of the United States of America. Now, I love teaching history, and I love learning about history, so I know today is going to be a fantastic show on the Alice Cardinelli Show. We've got a good two-hour show coming your way today. Now, over the past two weeks, we've been discussing the history of the United States And tonight we're going to finish it by discussing some of the recent events like World War II, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, 9-11, and the presidencies of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. We're going to discuss all of the recent events tonight on the Alice Cardinelli show. I can guarantee you this will be a show that your parents your grandparents, and you can relate to, unlike our first two History of the United States of America shows here on the Alice Cardinelli Show. 
Now, the first two episodes of the history of the United States, we've discussed the American Revolution, we've discussed the Revolutionary War, we discussed the presidency of George Washington, we discussed the War of 1812, we discussed the presidency of Andrew Jackson, and we discussed the Civil War all the way through the Great Depression in the Roaring 1920s. So we discussed pretty much everything leading up until World War II. So if you missed the first two episodes of the history of the United States of America, I really recommend you take a listen to our first two episodes of the history of the United States of America. You can listen to our first two episodes of the history of the United States of America by logging on to our website, blogtalkradio.com forward slash crazy alex talks or download them on itunes radio or if you have a android you can download them on your smartphone by listening to them on stitcher radio so i hope you will tune in to part one and part two of the history of the united states to get caught up to where we're going to talk about tonight all right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about here in part three. Tonight, we're going to discuss World War II, we'll discuss the Cold War, we'll discuss the Civil Rights Movement, we'll discuss the assassination of John F. Kennedy, we'll talk about the close of the 20th century, we'll talk about 9-11 and the famous day 9-11 has become here in America, we'll talk about the presidency of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and some recent events that took place here in the United States of America. Now, if you're listening live, don't forget you can call in at one three two three six four two one six zero five with any questions or comments you might have about the United States of America. Now you can also call in at one three two three six four two one six zero five to discuss your favorite president of the United States of America or discuss your thoughts on the assassination of John F. Kennedy or discuss your thoughts on 9-11 or to discuss your thoughts on the presidency of George W. Bush or Barack Obama. So go ahead and call in 1-323-642-1605 and I would love to have your call here on the Alex Carnelli Show. Come on, folks, I know a lot of you guys are United States of America citizens, so go ahead and call in and share your thoughts on the assassination of John F. Kennedy or your thoughts on 9-11 or your thoughts on the presidency of George W. Bush or Barack Obama. And I'll share my thoughts when we talk about that topic. All right, well, we've got a packed show, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. So this history of the United States is going to be a fun one because I get to talk about some things that happened while I was alive, but that comes later on in the show. 
and it's going to be a fun show where I can talk about things that your grandparents were alive for, maybe you were alive for, and people of my generation were alive for, so this is going to be great. So, let's get started. I've got a lot to talk about, and we'll start with World War II, which is perhaps one of the most recognized world wars. In the Depression years, the United States of America remained focused on domestic concerns while democracy declined across the world and many countries fell under the control of dictators. Imperial Japan asserted dominance in East Asia and in the Pacific. Nazi Germany and fascist Italy militarized to and threatened conquest while Britain and France attempted appeasement to avert another war in Europe. U.S. legislation in the Neutrality Act sought to avoid foreign conflicts. However, policy clashed with increasing anti-Nazi feelings following the German invasion of Poland in September 1939 that started World War II. Roosevelt positioned the U.S. as the arsenal of democracy, pledging full-scale financial and munition support for the Allies, but no military personnel. Japan tried to neutralize America's power in the Pacific by attacking Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, which catalyzed American support to enter the war and seek revenge. The main contributions of the United States to the Allied war effort compromised money, industrial output, food, petroleum, technical innovation, and especially in 1944 and 1945, military personnel. Much of the focus in Washington was maximizing the economic output of the nation. The overall result was a dramatic increase in GDP. The export of vast quantities of supplies to the Allies and to American forces overseas the end of unemployment and a rise in civilian consumption even as 40% of the GDP went to the war effort. This was achieved by tens of millions of workers moving from low, producti uh, low productivity occupations to high efficiency jobs, improvements in productivity through better technology and management and a move into the active labor force of students, retired people, housewives, and the unemployed, and an increase in hours' work. It was exhausting. Leisure activities declined sharply. People tolerated the extra work because of patriotism, the pay, and the confidence that it was only for the duration and life would return to normal as soon as the war was won. Most durable goods became unavailable, and meat, clothing, and gasoline were tightly rationated. 
in industrial areas, housing was in short supply as people doubled up and lived in cramped quarters. Prices and wages were controlled, and Americans saved a high portion of their incomes, which led to renewed growth after the war instead of a return to depression. The Allies, the United States of America, Britain, and the Soviet Union, as well as China, Canada, and other countries, fought the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan. The Allies saw Germany as the main threat and gave highest priority to Europe. The U.S. dominated the war against Japan and stopped Japanese expansion in the Pacific in 1942. After losing Pearl Harbor and in the Philippines to the Japanese and drawing the Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942, the American Navy inflicted a decisive blow at Midway in June of 1942. American ground forces assisted in the North African campaign that eventually concluded with the collapse of Bolisani's fascist government in 1943 as Italy switched to the Allied side. A more significant European front was opened on D-Day, June 6, 1944, in which American and Allied forces invaded Nazi-occupied France from Britain. On the home front, mobilization of the U.S. economy was managed by Roosevelt's War Production Board. The wartime production boom led to full employment, wiping out this vestige of the Great Depression. Indeed, labor shortages encouraged industry to look for new sources of workers, finding new roles for women and blacks. However, the fever also inspired anti-Japanese sentiment, which was handled by removing everyone of Japanese descent from the West Coast war zone. Research and development took flight as well, best seen in the Manhattan Project, a secret effort to harness nuclear fission to produce highly destructive atomic bombs. The Allies pushed the Germans out of France but faced an unexpected counterattack at the Battle of the Bulge in December. The final German effort failed, and as Allies armies in East and West were converging on Berlin, the Nazis hurriedly tried to kill the last remaining Jews. The West Front stopped short, leaving Berlin to the Soviets as the Nazi regime formally capitulated in May 1945, ending the war in Europe. Over in the Pacific, the U.S. implemented an island-hoping strategy toward Tokyo, establishing airfields for bombing runs against mainland Japan from the Morin Islands and achieving hard-fought victories at Iwa Jimmy and Aquini in 1945. 
bloodied uh, Queenie, the U.S. Pre uh, prepared to invade Japan's home islands when B-29s dropped atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, forcing the empire surrender in a matter of days and thus ending World War II. The U.S. occupied Japan and part of Germany, sending Douglas MacArthur to restructure the Japanese economy and political system along American lines. Though the nation lost more than 4,000 military personnel, the mainland prospered untouched by the devastation of war that inflicted a heavy toll on Europe and Asia. Participation in post-war foreign affairs marked the end of predominant American isolation. The awesome threat of nuclear weapons inspired both optimism and fear. Nuclear weapons were never used after 1945 as both sides drew back from the brink in a long piece characterized the Cold War years starting with the Truman Doctrine in May 22, 1947. There were, however, regional wars in Korea and Vietnam. And that, my friends, was World War II. All right. Now let's talk about the Cold War, counterculture, and civil rights. Following World War II, the United States of America emerged as one of the two dominant superpowers, the USSR being the other. The United States Senate, on a bipartisan vote, approved U.S. participation in the United Nations, which marked a turn away from the traditional nationalism of the U.S. and toward increased international involvement. The primarily American goal of 1945-1948 was to rescue Europe from the, from the division of World War II and to continue the expansion of communism represented by the Soviet Union. The Truman Doctrine of 1947 provided military and economic aid to Greece and Turkey to counteract the threat of communist expansion in the Balkans. In 1948, the United States replaced piecemeal financial aid programs with a comprehensive Marshall Plan, which pumped money into the economy of Western Europe and removed trade barriers while monitorizing the managerial practices of businesses and governments. The plan's $13 million budget was in the context of a U.S. GDP of $258 billion in 1948 and was in addition to the $12 billion in American aid given to European given to Europe between the end of the war and the start of the Marshall Plan. Soviet head of state Joseph Stalin prevented his satellite states from participating, and from that point on, Eastern Europe, with inefficient 
centralized economies fell further and further behind Western Europe in terms of economic development and prosperity. In 1949, the United States of America, rejecting the long-standing policy of no military alliances in peacetime, formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Alliance, which continues into the 21st century. In response, the Soviets formed the Warsaw Pact of Communist States. In August of 1949, the Soviets testified and tested their first nuclear weapon, thereby escalating the risk of warfare. Indeed, the threat of mutually assured destruction prevented both powers from going too far and resulted in proxy wars, especially in Korea and Vietnam, in which the two sides did not directly confront each other. Within the United States, the Cold War prompted concerns about communist influence. The unexpected leapfrogging of American technology by the Soviets in 1957 with Sputnik, the first Earth satellite, began the space race won by Americans as Apollo 11 landed astronauts on the moon in 1969. The end just about the weaknesses of American education led to large-scale federal support for science education and research. In a decade after World War II, the United States became a global influence in economic, political, military, cultural, and technological affairs. Beginning in the 1950s, middle-class cultural became obsessed with consumer goods. While white Americans made up nearly 90% of the population in 1950. Now, in 1960, the charismatic politician John F. Kennedy was elected as the first and thus far only Roman Catholic president of the United States of America. The family, or the Kennedy family, brought a new life and vigor to the atmosphere of the White House. His time in office was marked by such notable events as the acceleration of the United States' role in the space race, escalation of the American role in the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the jailing of Martin Luther King Jr. during the Birmingham campaign, and the appointment of his brother Robert F. Kennedy to his cabinet as Attorney General. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963, leaving the nation in profound shock. And we'll discuss the assassination of John F. Kennedy later on in the show. And that, my friends, is World War II and the Cold War. Now we're going to talk about the Civil Rights Movement. All right. So since yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, let's learn about the American Civil Rights Movement. 
the African-American Civil Rights Movement or 1960s Civil Rights Movement encompasses social movements in the United States whose goals were to end racial segregation and discrimination against black Americans to secure legal recognition and federal protection of the citizenship rights in the Constitution and federal, federal law. This article covers the phase of the movement between 1954 and 1968, particularly in the South. The movement was character, uh, characteristicized by major campaigns of civil resistance. Between 1955 and 1968, acts of nonviolent protest and civil disobedience produced crisis situations and productive dialogues between activists and government authorities. Federal, state, and local governments, business, and communities often had to respond immediately to these situations that highlighted the inequalities faced by African Americans. Forms of protest and or civil disobedience included boycotts such as the successful Montgomery bus boycott in 1955-1956 in Alabama, sit-ins such as the influential Greensboro sit-ins in 1960 in North Carolina, marches such as the Selma to Montgomery marches in 1965 in Alabama, and a wide range of other nonviolent activities. Noted legislative achievements during this phase of the Civil Rights Movement were passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that banned discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin in employment practices and public accommodations. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 that restored and protected voting rights. The Immigration and Nationality Services Act of 1965 that dramatically opened entry to the U.S. to immigrants other than traditional European groups, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that banned discrimination in the sale or rental of housing. African Americans reentered politics in the South and across the country. Young people were inspired to take action. A wave of inner-city riots in black communities from 1964 through 1970 undercut support from the white community. The emergence of the black power movement, which lasted from about 1966 to 1975, challenged the established black leadership for its cooperative attitude and its nonviolence and instead demanded political and economic self-sufficiency. While most popular 
representation through the movement are centered on the leadership and philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. Many scholars note the movement was far too diverse to be credited to one person, organization, or strategy. Sociologist Doug McAdam has stated that in King's case, it would be inaccurate to say that he was the leader of the modern civil rights movement. But more importantly, there was no singular civil rights movement. The movement was, in fact, a coalition of thousands of local efforts nationwide, spanning several decades, hundreds of discrete groups, and all manner of strategies and tactics. Legal, illegal, institutional, non-institutional, violent, and non-violent. Without discounting King's importance, it would be sheer fiction to call him the leader of what was fundamentally and a formless, fluid, dispersed movement. All right. Now let's talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Although President Kennedy had proposed civil rights legislation and it had support from northern congressmen and senators of both parties, southern senators blocked the bill by threatening filibusters. After considerable parliamental maneuvering and 54 days of filibuster on the floor of the United States Senate, President Johnson got a bill through the Congress. On July 2nd, 1964, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that banned discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin in employment practices and public accommodations. Now, this bill, this bill still stands to this day. The Civil Rights Act of 1954 still prohibit, prohibits discrimination against race, color, religion, or sex, or national origin. The bill authorized the Attorney General to file lawsuits to enforce the new law. The law also notified state and local laws that required such discrimination. All right, so that's a brief history about the Civil Rights Movement. And we're going to do a show just on the history of the Civil Rights Movement because it is so long. It is kind of hard to do um, a show on the Civil Rights Movement. It's hard to do a segment on a show of the Civil Rights Movement because the Civil Rights Movement will probably take about an hour to an hour and 45 minutes to talk about. So we're going to do a whole entire show on the Civil Rights Movement. I figured I'd just do a small segment of the Civil Rights Movement in today's history of the United States of America. Since February is Black History Month, we will do a history show on the Civil Rights Movement and talk about all of the major events that took place in the Civil Rights Movement in February. Of course, the United States of America would later recognize the blacks as USA citizens. All right, moving on down to our next part of history. We'll be speaking of President Kennedy. Let's learn about his poor fate and learn 
about his assassination. All right, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States of America, was assassinated at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22, 1963, in Dealey Plaza, Dallas, Texas. Kennedy was fatally shot by a sniper while traveling with his wife, Jacqueline, Texas Governor John Colony, and Colony's wife, Nellie, in a presidential motorcade. A 10-month investigation from November 1963 to September 1954 by the Warren Commission concluded that Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, and that Jack Rudy also acted alone when he killed Oswald before he could stand trial. Although the commission's conclusions were initially supported by a majority of the American public, polls conducted between 1966 and 2003 found that as many as 80% of Americans have suspected that there was a plot or a cover-up. A 1998 CBS News poll showed that 76% of Americans believed that the president had been killed as the result of a conspiracy. A 2013 AP poll showed that although the percentage had fallen, more than 50, 59% of those polled still believed that more than one person was involved in the president's murder. A Gallup poll in mid-November 2013 showed 61% believed in a conspiracy and 30% thought Oswald did it alone. In contrast to the conclusions of the Warren Commission, the United States House Select Committee, Committee of Assassinations concluded in 1978 that Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. The HSEA found the original FBI investigation and the Warren Commission report to be seriously flawed. While agreeing with the commission that Oswald fired all the shots which caused the wounds to Kennedy and Connolly, SHCA stated that there were at least four shots fired, only three of which could be linked to Oswald, and that there was a high probability that two gunmen fired at the president. The HSCA conclusion was based only on accusational evidence that was later discredited. The HSCA did not identify any other person or person any other person or group involved in the assassination besides Oswald, but they did specifically say that the CIA, the Soviet Union, organized crime, and several other groups were not involved, although they could not rule out the involvement of individual members of those groups. Kennedy's assassination is still the subject of widespread debate and has spawned numerous conspiracy theories and alternative scenarios. 
at 12.29 p.m. Central Standard Time as President Kennedy's uncovered limousine entered Delaney Plaza. Nellie Connolly, then the First Lady of Texas, turned around to President Kennedy, who was sitting behind her, and commented, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you, which President Kennedy acknowledged by saying, no, you certainly can't. Those are the last words ever spoken by John F. Kennedy. He gave his reply just after the Maine to Houston street turn with photos and films even showing him leaning in towards Miss Connolly on Houston street to reply to her. From Houston street, the presidential limousine made the planned left turn onto Elm Street, allowing it access to the Stemmons Freeway exit. As it turned on Elm, the motorcade passed the Texas School Book Depository. Shots were fired at President Kennedy as they continued down Elm Street. About 80% of the witnesses recalled hearing three shots. A minority of the witnesses A minority of the witnesses recognized the first gunshot blast they heard as a weapon blast, but there was hardly any reaction to the first shot from a majority of the people in the crowd or those riding in the motorcade. Many later said they heard what they thought to be a firecracker or the exhaust backfire of a vehicle just after the president started waving. Within one second of each other, President Kennedy, Governor Connolly, and Miss Kennedy all turned abruptly from looking to their left to looking to their right between Zepedeer film frames 155 and 169. Connolly, like the president, a World War II military veteran, and... Unlike him, a longtime hunter testified he immediately recognized the sound of a high-powered rifle. Then he turned his head and torso rightward, attempt, attempting to see President Kennedy behind him. Governor Connolly testified he could not see the president, so he then started to turn forward again, turning from his right to his left. Connolly testified that when his head was facing about 20 degrees left of center, he was hit in his upper right back by a bullet he did not hear fired. The doctor who operated on Connolly measured his head at the time he was hit as turned 27 degrees left of center. After Connolly was hit, he shouted, Oh no, 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 my God, they're going to kill us all. Miss Connolly testified that just after hearing her first loud, frightening noise that came from somewhere behind her and to her right, she turned toward President Kennedy and saw him with his arms and elbows raised high with his hands in front of his face and throat. She then heard another gunshot and then Governor Colony yelling. Miss Connolly then turned away from President Kennedy toward her husband, at which point another gunshot sounded, and she and the limousine's rear interior were covered with fragments of skull, blood, and brain. Ugh. 
disgusting scene. According to the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, as President Kennedy waved to the crowds on his high right, on his right with his right arm upraised on the side of the limo, a shot entered his upper back, penetrated his neck, slightly damaged a spinal vertebrae in the top of his right lung, and exited his throat nearly center line just below his larynx, nickeling the left side of his suit tie knot. He raised his elbows and clenched his fist in front of his face and neck, then leaned forward and left. Miss Kennedy, facing him, then put her arms around him in concern. Governor Connolly also reacted after the same bullet penetrated his back just below his right armpit, creating an oval entry wound, impacted and destroyed four inches of his right fifth rib, exited his chest just below his right nipple, creating a two-and-a-half-inch oval sucking air chest wound, entered his arm just above his right wrist, cleanly shattered his right radius bone into eight pieces, exited just below the wrist at the inner side of his right palm, and finally lodged in his left inner thigh. The Warren Commission theorized that the single bullet struck sometime between separator frames 210 to 225, while the, the House Select Community theorized that it struck exactly at superior frame 190. According to the Warren Commission, a second shot struck the president at Jupiter Film frame 313. The commission made no conclusion as to whether this was the second or third bullet fired. The presidential limousine was then passing in front of the John Newley Bryan North Pergola concrete structure. Meanwhile, the House Select Community concluded that a fourth shot was fired at almost the same time from a separate sniper, but that it missed. Each body concluded that the second shot hit the president, entered the rear of his head. The House Select Committee placed the entry wound four inches higher than the Warren Commission placed it, and passing in fragments through his head created a large, roughly ovular hole on the rear right side. The president's blood and fragments of his scalp, brain, and skull landed on the interior of the car, the inner and outer surfaces of the front glass windshield, and raised sun visors. The front engine hood, the rear trunk lid, the follow-up Secret Service car in its driver's left arm, and motorcycle officers riding on both sides of the president behind him. United States Secret Service Special Agent Clint Hill was riding on the left front running board of the follow-up car, which was immediately behind the presidential limousine. Hill testified that he heard one shot, then, as documented in other films, and concurrent with Zapater, frame 308, he jumped off into Elm Street and ran forward to try to get on the limousine and protect the president. 
After the president had been shot in the head, Miss Kennedy began to climb out onto the back of the limousine, though she later had no recollection of doing so. Hill believed she was reaching for something, perhaps a piece of the president's skull. He jumped onto the back of the limousine, while at the same time, Miss Kennedy returned to her seat, and he clung to the car as it exited the Lee Plaza and also rided spe- speeding to Parkland Memorial Hospital. After Miss Kennedy crawled back into her limousine seat, both Governor Col- Colony and Miss Colony heard her say more than once, they have killed my husband, and I have his brain in my hand. In a long, reacted interview for Life magazine days later, Miss Kennedy recalled, All the ride to the hospital, I kept bending over him saying, Jack, Jack, can you hear me? I love you, Jack. I kept holding the top of his head down, trying to keep the, president, the president's window. Could, widow could not finish her sentence. The assassination evoked stunned reactions worldwide. Before the president's death was announced, the first hour after the shooting was a time of great confusion. Taking place during the Cold War, it was at first unclear whether the shooting might be part of a larger attack upon the U.S. and whether Vice President London Johnson, who had been riding two cars behind in the motorcade, was safe. A new shock in the nation. People openly and gathered. People wept openly and gathered in department stores to watch the television coverage, while others prayed. Traffic in some areas came to a halt as the news spread from car to car. Schools across the U.S. United States dismissed their students early. Angry against Texas and Texans was reported from some individuals. Various Cleveland Brown fans, for example, carried signs at the next Sunday's home game against the Dallas Cowboys, decrying the city of Dallas as having killed the president. The event left a lasting impression on many Americans. As with the December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor before it and the September 11, 2001 attacks, after it, asking, where were you when you heard about President Kennedy's assassination would become a topic of discussion. All right. Now let's move on to our next topic, and that is the counterculture revolution and Cold War detention. Amid the Cold War, the United States entered the Vietnam War, whose growing unpopularity fed already existing social movements, including those among women, minorities, and young people. President Lyndon B. Johnson's Greater Society Social Programs and numerous rulings by the Warren Court added to the wide range of social reform during the 1960s and 1970s. Feminist and environmental movement became political forces and pro- progress continued through continued continued toward civil rights for all Americans. 
the counterculture revolution swept through the nation and much of the Western world in the late 60s and early 70s, further dividing Americans in a culture war, but also bringing forth more liberated social views. Johnson was defeated in 1969 by Republican Richard Nixon, who attempted to gradually turn the war over to the South Vietnam forces. He negotiated the peace treaty in 1973, which secured the re- release of POWs and led the, to the withdrawal of U.S. troops. The war had cost the lives of 58,000 American troops. Nixon manipulated the, the fierce distrust between the Soviet Union and China to the advantage of the United States, achieving the tenny relaxation ease of tents with both parties. Now, the Watergate scandal involving Nixon's cover-up of his Operatives break in into the Democratic National Committee Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex, destroyed his political base, sent many aides to prison, and forced Nixon's resignation on August 9, 1974. So that was the first president to resign from office. He was succeeded by Vice President Gerald Ford. The fall of Singin ended the Vietnam War and resulted in North and South Vietnam being reunited. Communist victories in neighboring Cambodia and Laos occurred in the same year. Jimmy Carter, running as someone who was not part of the Washington political establishment, was elected president in 1976. On the world stage, Carter brokered the Camp Dave Accords between Israel and Egypt. In 1979, Iran students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 56 Americans hostage, resulting in the Iranian hostage crisis. With the hostage crisis and continuing stagflation, Carter lost the 1980 election to the Republican Ronald Reagan. On January 20th, 1981, minutes after Carter's term in office ended, the remaining U.S. captives held at the U.S. Embassy in Iran were released, ending the 444-day hostage crisis. And our last topic before we go to our first commercial break, and our only commercial break, is close of the 20th century. All right. Ronald Reagan produced a major realignment with his 1980 and 1984 landslide elections. Reagan's economic policies and the implementation of the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981 lowered income taxes from 70% to 28% over the course of seven years. Reagan continued to downsize government taxation and regulation. The U.S. experienced a recession in 1982, but the negative indicators reversed with the inflation rate decreasing from 11% to 2%, the unemployment rate decreasing from 10.8% in December 
1982 to 7.5% uh, in November of 1984, and the economic growth rate increasing from 4.5% to 7.2%. Reagan ordered a buildup of the U.S. military, incurring additional budget deficits. Reagan introduced a complicated missile defense system known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, dubbed Star Wars by opponents, in which theoretically the U.S. could shoot down missiles with litter systems in space. The Soviets reacted harshly because they thought it violated the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missiles Treaty and would upset the balance of power by giving the U.S. a major military advantage. Four years, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev argued vehemently against SDI. However, by the late 1980s, he decided the system would never work and should not be used to block disarmament deals with the U.S., Historians argue how great an impact the SDI threat had on the Soviets, whether it was enough to force Gorbachev to initiate radical reforms or whether the deterioration of the Soviet economy alone forced the reforms. There's argument that the Soviets realized they were well behind the Americans in military technology that to try to catch up would be very expensive, and that military expenses were already a very heavy burden slowing down their economy. Reagan's invasion of Guyana and bombing of Libya were popular in the U.S., so his backing of the um, country of rebels were, was mired in the controversy over the Iran country affair that revealed Reagan's poor management style. The United States emerged as the world's sole remaining superpower and continued to intervene in international affairs during the 1990s, including the 1991 Gulf War against Iraq. Following his election in 1992, President Bill Clinton oversaw one of the long, longest periods of economic expansion and unprecedented gains in secretaries' values, a side effect of the digital revolution and new business opportunities created by the Internet. He also worked with the Republican Congress to pass the first balanced federal budget in 30 years. In 1998, Clinton was impeached by the House of Representatives on the charges of high crimes and misdemeanors for lying about a sexual relationship with White House intern Monica Lewinsky, but was later acquitted by the Senate. The failure of impeachment and the Democratic gains in the 1998 election forced House Speaker Newt Gingrich, a Republican, to resign from Congress. And finally, before we go to commercial break, we'll talk about the presidential election. The presidential election in 2000 between George W. Bush and Al Gore was one of the closest in U.S. history and helped lay the seeds for political polarization to come. The vote in the decisive state of Florida was extremely close and produced a dramatic dispute over the counting of votes. 
the U.S. Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore ended the recount with a 5-4 to four vote. That meant Bush then, in the lead, carried Florida and the election. All right, what a great start to our final history of the United States of America. What a great start to the show. We've learned about World War II, and we've learned about the end of the 20th century. All right, coming up next here, um, part three of the history of the United States of America, we're going to learn about 9-11, we'll learn about recent events, we'll learn about the presidency of George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and much more. So stick around, we've got plenty more history of the United States of America, part three, coming up next. I have been speaking for 55 minutes straight, so I can use a commercial break. So, we're going to hear two wonderful songs. We're going to hear Moves Like Jagger in New York. And New York is being sung for the United States of America. So, let's take a commercial break. And when we come back, we'll continue on the history of the United States of America. And we'll learn about some recent events. Don't forget, you can call in at one three two three six four two. 1605 to share your thoughts on the killing of John F. Kennedy and 9-11. We'll see you after this long-deserved commercial break. The Aquatic Wetline is a tropical fish-keeping podcast that is dedicated to all the tropical fish keepers. The Aquatic Wetline covers freshwater, saltwater, and reptiles. The Aquatic Wetline is the one and only fish-keeping podcast hosted by a fish keeper for fish keepers. Aquatic Wetline is one of the original fish-keeping podcasts that was the first to be dedicated to freshwater fish on Blog Talk Radio. With over 100 episodes and plenty of new episodes coming to you live each week, Aquatic Wetline is the place to be for all fish keepers. So check us out. blogtalkradio.com forward slash aquaalex Dakota Aquatics Plus is the next best aquarium keeping show here on Blog Talk Radio. Your host of this show, Andrew will dive deep into the topics of freshwater and saltwater fish, reptiles, and other pets. Dakota Aquatics Plus is live every Saturday and is a show that you will enjoy. So check Andrew out. blogtalkradio.com forward slash Dakota Aquatics Plus. Gail Carson is a singer and songwriter who produces some awesome music. Gail Carson is an ASCAP, multi-genre singer-slash-songwriter spanning folk, country, roots, Americana, and a little bit of rock and roll. www.gailcarson.com Gail Carson is also a radio show host of The Gail Carson Show, an original indie artist showcase series broadcast on internet radio stations all over the world. Gail Carson is a professional photographer, videographer, and graphic artist www.gailcarsonphotograph.com Gail Carson is a producer slash engineer. Gail Carson is a music promoter. Choosing guitar accessories can be expensive and time-consuming, but it doesn't have to be. Jambox will deliver the necessities right to your front door. Jambox is great for players of any age and all experience levels. Try new brands, 
new products, and get your jam on. Order a jam box today at www.jamboxcanada.ca. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. On the next episode of the Alice Cardinelli Show, he's got a special Thursday night episode for you. That's right, the Alice Cardinelli Show will be live this Thursday, January 22nd, 2015, at 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, Alex welcomes his first guest of 2015, to the Alex Cardinelli Show. Our guest this Thursday will be none other than Slash Master 1989, Jeff. Jeff and Alex will discuss the 2015 WWE Royal Rumble. Jeff and Alex will make their 2015 WWE Royal Rumble prediction and discuss their favorite Royal Rumble moments matches, and more. So make sure, WWE fans, you join Jeff and Alex live this Thursday, January 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern for a special WWE 2015 Royal Rumble preview show, our very first ever. So, we've got one question for you, Alex Canoe Show fans. Are you ready to rumble this Thursday, January 22nd? We sure hope so. We'll see you this Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on The Alice Carnelli Show. It's time to get funky right here on The Alice Carnelli Show. We're going to hear some wonderful music on The Alice Carnelli Show. I hope you like music, so DJ Alex... Take it away and play some wonderful music here on the Alex Cardinelli Show. Yeah! Another one by the dust.
Tribeca, right next to the Nero, but I'll be hood forever, I'm the new Sinatra, and since I made it here, I can make it anywhere, yeah, they love me everywhere, I used to cop in Harlem, all of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway, pulled me back to that McDonald's, took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street, catch me in the kitchen like the Simmons whipping pastry, cruising down A Street, off white Lexus, driving so slow, but BK is from Texas, me, I'm out there bed stop, home of that boy Biggie, now I live on Billboard, and I brought my boys with me, say what up to Tata, still sipping my ties, sitting courtside, nicks and nets give me high five, nigga I be spiked out, I could trip a referee, tell by my attitude that I most definitely from Everybody ride her, just like a bus route. Hell Mary to the city, you're a virgin. And Jesus can't save you, life starts when the church is. Came here for school, graduated to the high life. Ball players, rap stars, addicted to the limelight. MC and May got you feeling like a champion. The city never sleeps, better slip you an ambient.
you are tuned in live to the Alex Cardinali show. We hope you enjoy our nice music and commercial break. Let's dive back into the show and find out what's next on the table for discussion. Now back to Alex Cardinali live from the Blog Talk Radio studio. And we're back here live on the Alex Cardinali show doing our third and final history of the United States here on the Alex Cardinali show. We're having a great show thus far. And before the commercial break, we were discussing World War II, the Cold War, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and we also discussed the end of the 20th century. Now, coming up in a few minutes here, we're going to discuss some of the recent events, such as 9-11, the presidency of George W. Bush, and the presidency of Barack Obama, and then we'll finally end the history of the United States series. But first, I'd like to give another caller plug-in. You are welcome to call in at 1-323-642-1605 with any questions that you got on the United States or any comments that you have on the United States. You can share your thoughts on um, the killing of John F. Kennedy or 9-11. Or share your favorite United States president, 1-323-642-1605. And I see we only got about 33 minutes left, so I'm going to go ahead and um, finish up the history as fast as I can because 30 minutes is a short amount of time to talk about history. All right, so we'll talk about a recent history here. We're going to talk about the 21st century and we'll start with 9-11 and the War on Terror. Now, on September 11th, 2001, which is also called 9-11, the United States was struck by a terrorist attack with 19 Al-Qaeda hijackers, um, commandeered four airliners, and intentionally crashed into both of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon, killing at least 2,550 American civilians and 55 military personnel, along with 372 non-Americans, excluding the 19 hijackers. The fourth plane, United Flight 93, was retaken by the passengers and crew of the aircraft. While they were not able to land the plane safely, they were able to take control of the aircraft and crash it into an empty field in Pennsylvania, thereby saving whatever target the terrorists were aiming for. In response, on September 20th, President George W. Bush announced the War on Terror. On October 7th, 2001, the United States and NATO then invaded Afghanistan to oust the Taliban regime, which has provided safe haven to al-Qaeda and its leader Osama bin Laden. The federal government established new domestic efforts to prevent further attacks. The controversial USA Patriot Act increased the government's power to monitor communications and removed legal restrictions on information sharing between federal law enforcement and intelligence services. A cabinet-level agency called the Department of Homeland Security was created to lead and coordinate federal counter-terrorism activities. 
some of these anti-terrorism efforts, particularly the U.S. government's handling of detainees at the prison at Guantanamo Bay led to allegations against the U.S. government of human rights violations. In 2003, from March 19th to May 1st, the United States launched an invasion of Iraq, which led to the collapse of the Iraq government and the eventual collapse and capture of Iraq Director Saddam Hassan, or Saddam Hussein, with whom the U.S. had long-standing tense relations. The relations for the invade, the reasons for the invasion cited by the Bush administration, including the spreading of democracy, the elimination of weapons of mass destruction, and though later investigations found parts of the intelligence reports to be inaccurate and deliberation of the Iraqi people. Despite some initial successes earlier in the invasion, the continued Iraq war fueled international protest and gradually saw domestic support decline as many people began to question whether or not the invasion was worth the cost. In 2007, after years of violence by the Iraqi insurgents, President Bush deployed more troops in a strategy dubbed the Surge. While the death toll decreased, the political stability of Iraq remained in doubt. In 2008, the unpopularity of President Bush and the Iraq War, along with the 2008 financial crisis, led to the election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president of the United States. After his election, Obama reluctantly continued the war, the war effort in Iraq until August 31, 2010, when he declared that combat operations had ended. However, 50,000 American soldiers and military personnel were kept in Iraq to assist Iraqi forces, help protect with strong forces, and work on counterterrorism until December 15, 2011, when the war was declared formally over and the last troops left the country. At the same time, Obama increased American involvement in Afghanistan, starting a surge strategy using an additional 3,000 troops while proposing to begin withdrawing troops sometime in December of 2014. With regards to Guantanamo Bay, President Obama forbade torture, but in general retained Bush's policy regarding the Guantanamo detainees, while also proposing that the prison eventually be closed. In May 2011, after nearly a decade in, in hiding, the founder and leader of Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, was killed in Pakistan in a raid conducted by the U.S. Naval Special Forces acting under President Obama's direct orders. While Al-Qaeda Al-Qaeda was never collapsed or was near collapse in Afghanistan. Affiliated organizations continue to operate in Yemen and other remote areas as the CIA used drones to hunt down and remove its leadership. On December 28, 2014, President Obama officially ended the combat mission in Afghanistan and thus 9-11 thereby is over. All right, 
So that is that for this part of the 21st century. And I'm not going to go into further information about 9-11 because not too many people have too many different opinions, and it's just um, a weird thing to talk about on a year. So right now we're going to go into the presidency of George W. Bush, and I know he's one of the presidents that is hated on, and not too many people like the presidencies of George W. Bush. And I, for one, am one that didn't understand his moves as president, but I did respect his uh, presidency. So let's talk about the presidency of George W. Bush. Key moves as president. The first one will be, of course, 9-11 and war on terrorism. Now, that is a tough time to be a president if someone had killed over 3,000 United States Americans and citizens and civilians. It would be tough for any president to combat. So I have to give props to President um, Bush for creating the war on terrorism and thus hoping that there will be no more um, terrorism in the United States of America. Now, unfortunately, another bad act as president, which is um, has nothing to do with President Obama, is Hurricane Katrina. Um, this was a devastating Mother Nature um, act that took place when George W. Bush was president. Now, George W. Bush's legacy remains a contested one, with both liberals and conservatives still holding strong feelings with regards to his overall place in history. Supporters credit Bush's counterterrorism policies with preventing another major terrorist attack from occurring after 9-11, and have also praised individual policies such as the No Child Left Behind Act, the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit, and the AIDS relief program known as PEPFAR. His critics often point to his handling of the Iraq War, specifically the failure to find weapons of mass destruction that were essentially the basis for the war, as well as his handling of tax policy, Hurricane Katrina, and a 2008 financial crisis as proof that George W. Bush was unfit to be president. Despite the ongoing debate between liberals and conservatives, it is often acknowledged that Bush was one of the most consequential presidents in American history. According to Princeton University scholar Julian Zesler, Bush's presidency was a transformative one and stated that so many people hated him, so many people love him, but I do think he'll have a much more substantive perception as time goes on. Brian Williams of the Huffington Post referred to Bush as the most noteworthy president since Franklin D. Roosevelt and pointed to policies such as the Patriot Act, which he argues increased the authority of the executive branch at the expense of judicial operations and opinions about when searches and seizures are responsible as evidence. These arguments are further reflected in the continuation of many policies implemented during his presidency. 
His administration presided over the largest tax cuts since the Reagan administration, and his homeland security reforms proved to be the most significant expansion of the federal government since the Great Society, with many of these policies having endured in the administration of Bush's Democratic successor, Barack Obama. Among the public, his reputation has improved somewhat since his presidency ended in 2009. In February 2012, Gallup reported that Americans still rate George W. Bush among the worst presidents, though their views have become more positive in the three years since he left office. Gallup had earlier noticed that Bush's Favorability ratings and public opinion surveys had begun to rise a year after he left office from 40% in January 2009 and 35% in March 2009 to 45% in July 2010, a period during which he had remained largely out of the news. Other pollsters have noted similar trends of slight improvement in Bush's personal favorability since the end of his presidency. In April 2013, Bush's approval rating stood at 47% approval and 50% disapproval in a, poll, in a poll jointly conducted for the Washington Post and ABC, his highest approval rating since December of 2005. Bush had achieved notable gains among seniors, non-college whites, and moderate and conservative Democrats since leaving office, although majorities disapproved of his handling of the economy, the Iraq War, and the Iraq War. His 47 approval rating was equal to that of President Obama's in the same polling period. A CNN poll conducted that same month found that 55% of Americans said Bush's presidency had been a failure, with 80% of Republicans calling it a success, but only 40%, only 43% of independents calling it a success, and nearly 90% of Democrats calling it a failure. All right, and now let's talk about um, let's talk about the presidency of our current president, and that is Barack Obama. Believe it or not, Barack Obama is our current president. All right, so for Barack Obama, he is our first African-American president. He has instituted the gun control, and he's a part of the Great Recession. Now, I'm not a big fan of Barack Obama, but um, he is a pretty good president if I had to to a minute. And I see we've got a caller here on the Oscar Nelly Show. Thank you for calling into the Oscar Nelly Show. Hello? Hello? Hey, uh, this is about, this, this show is about like animals, right? No. Sorry about that. That, that, should, that seems to be a, a color that I was not expecting. This is about the United States history, not animals. Anyways, um, we're going to be talking about the presidency of um, Barack Obama. So anyways, in September of 2008, the United States and most of Europe entered the longest post-World War II recession, often called the Great Recession. 
multiple overlapping crises were involved, especially the housing market crisis, a subprime mortgage crisis, soaring oil prices, an automotive industry crisis, rising unemployment, and the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. The financial crisis threatened the stability of the entire economy in September 2008 when Lehman Brothers failed and other giant banks were in grave danger. Starting in October, the federal government lent $245 billion to financial institutions through the Trouble Assist Relief Program, which is passed by bipartisan majorities and signed by President Bush. Following his election victory by a wide electoral margin in November 2008, Bush's successor, Barack Obama, signed into law the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which was a $787 billion economic stimulus aimed at helping the economy recover from the deepening recession. Obama, like Bush, took steps to rescue the auto industry and prevent future economic meltdowns. These included a bailout of General Motors and Chrysler, putting ownership temporarily in the hands of the government, and the Class for Clunkers program, which temporarily boosted new car sales. The recession officially ended in June 2009, and the economy slowly began to expand once again. The unemployment rate peaked at 10.1% in October 2009 after surging from 4.7% in November 2007 and gradually fell to 6.2% as of July 2014. However, overall economic growth has remained weaker, weaker in 2010 compared to expansions in the previous decades. And that is one of the um, key elements into the Barack Obama presidency. All right, our last and final topic for this series and for this show is recent events in the United States history. From 2009 to 2010, the 111th Congress passed major legislation such as the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, and the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repel Act, which was signed into law by Barack Obama. Following the 2010 midterm elections, which resulted in a Republican-controlled House of Representatives and a Democratic-controlled Senate, Congress presided over a period of elevated gridlock and heated debate over whether or not to raise the debt ceiling, extend tax cuts for citizens, making over $250,000 annually, and many other key issues. These ongoing debates led to President Obama signing the Budget Control Act of 2011. In the fall of 2012, Mitt Romney challenged Barack Obama with solutions to the economy and foreign policy. Romney made a comment about how 47% of the country is dependent on the government upsetting many citizens in the country, helping Obama win. Now, other major events that have occurred during the 2010s include the rise of new political movements such as the conservative Tea Party movement and the liberal Occupy movement. 
There were also unusually severe weather during the early part of the decade. In 2012, over half the country experienced record drought, and Hurricane Sandy caused massive damage to coastal areas of New York and New Jersey. The ongoing debate over the issue of rights for the LGBT community, most notably that of same-sex marriage, began to shift in favor of same-sex couples and has been reflected in dozens of polls released in the early part of the decade. In 2012, President Obama becoming the first president to openly support same-sex marriage. In the 2013 Supreme Court decision in the case of the U.S. State, United States versus Windsor provided for federal recognition of same-sex unions. An issue with equality and police officers was a big at the end of 2014, especially after protests erupted in cities across the United States after a grand jury decides not to charge a New York police officer who killed Eric Garner with a chokehold. Immigration and foreign policy has been a major issue with the Obama administration with the rise of Islamic terrorists in 2014. Russia and North Korea played additional key foreign policy issues in earlier of 2014. In December 2014, Obama announced that he's planning on restoring diplomatic relations with Cuba, which is a controversial issue along the Cuban-American community. In January 2015, there was a major terrorist attack in Paris, which leaders from all around the world went to Paris to support, and went to Paris to support anti-terrorism, and the White House was criticized for not sending anyone. In the November 2014 midterm elections, the Republican Party took control of the U.S. Senate and expanded its, in its majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Voters were very unsatisfied with the, doc, with the Democrats and the Obama administration on the economy, immigration, and foreign policy. These debates remained ongoing over secretion as well as tax reform, immigration reform, and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East right away in 2015. The president has issued many veto threats already. House and Senate majority leaders will have to convince Congress to override the president if they want to get things accomplished. All right, that's going to end our history of the United States of America. This has been a fun series, and I definitely, definitely enjoy it. So I, I see in the chat room someone was offended by my um, George W. Bush comments, but we're all adults. You don't like what I say on the show? You don't listen to my show. Um, George W. Bush is a president that has a lot of unnecessary hate, so to speak. He's a president. He's in charge. But I do agree with some of the comments this person made in the chat room. But I still think um, – he was an okay president. Anyways, I'm going to go ahead and um, change uh, topics here. This has been a great series, and I really did enjoy talking about the history of the United States of America. Now, a couple of you guys have asked me, because since you guys like the history series so much, is this series coming to an end? No, the history series is not coming to an end. Just the history of the US, USA is still over with. I'm still doing history shows. I'll be doing history shows on stores, Walmart, 
um, history shows for like the 4th of July. I'll do a show on that. Plenty more history shows coming up on the Alex Cornelli Show. So this is not the end of history shows, just the end of the history of the United States of America. So there is plenty more. All right. So before we go, I've got one announcement to make. And from here on out, there's going to be fun history shows now. That's right. All of our next history shows are going to be very fun. Our next history show will be on Walmart. That's right. We're going to history of Walmart, and that's going to be on, let's see here, Tuesday, February 10th, 2015, at 8 p.m. Eastern. So make sure you join us for our next history show, Tuesday, February 10th, for the history of Walmart. And that'll be a show everyone likes, whether you're into politics or not, because I'm done talking about politics, because politics will cause some people to hate a talk show, and that's not what I need for being a new show. So I'm done with politics here on the Alice Cornelli Show, and we're going to get into the fun, fun, fun history show of Walmart. So with that being said, I'd like to wish you all a happy rest of your Wednesday afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode of the Alice Cornelli Show. I hope you guys enjoyed it and learned a lot. And if you did enjoy today's show, please go ahead and share it on your Facebook or Twitter or Google Plus account. I can get all the listeners I need. So I really hope you guys enjoyed today's show. With that being said, I'm your host, Alice Cardinelli. Thank you for listening to the Alice Cardinelli Show. And we'll see you for our next episode of the Alice Cardinelli Show. Alice Cardinelli and the Alice Cardinelli Show, signing off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. On the next episode of the Alice Cardinelli Show, he's got a special Thursday night episode for you. That's right, the Alice Cardinelli Show will be live this Thursday, January 22nd, 2015, at 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, Alex welcomes his first guest of 2015, to the Alex Cardinelli Show. Our guest this Thursday will be none other than Slashmaster1989, Jeff. Jeff and Alex will discuss the 2015 WWE Royal Rumble. Jeff and Alex will make their 2015 WWE Royal Rumble predictions and discuss their favorite Royal Rumble moments matches, and more. So make sure, WWE fans, you join Jeff and Alex live this Thursday, January 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern for a special WWE 2015 Royal Rumble preview show, our very first ever. So, we've got one question for you, Alex Cannelli Show fans. Are you ready to rumble this Thursday, January 22nd? We sure hope so. We'll see you this Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on the Alice Carnelli Show.
Thank you for listening to the Alex Cardinal Show, your one stop for anything sports, news, politics, and general chat. Make sure you join us each and every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Please like our fan page on Facebook. Log on to Facebook and type in the Alex Cardinal Show and click like. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Check us out there. For more information on our show, check out our webpage, blogtalkradio.com forward slash crazy Alex Talks. Have a good night, and thanks for listening to the Alex Cardinal Show.